I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. is working to bridge the gap between high-yield, low-cost, and large-scale industrial biotechnology and low-yield, high-cost, small-scale biopharmaceuticals. Its C1 technology, which is a fungal expression system, can efficiently produce enzymes and other proteins. Earlier this year, the company achieved a milestone when it began dosing patients in a phase one clinical trial in South Africa of its COVID-19 booster vaccine. The company expects the first in human trial to accelerate the adoption of the C1 production platform for vaccine and therapeutic candidates. We spoke to Mark Emelfarb, president and CEO of Dyadic, about the company's fungal-based manufacturing platform, how it can produce large volumes of enzymes and other proteins in a fast and cost-effective manner, and the potential this has to change the way biologics are manufactured. Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Danny, for having me. We're going to talk about Dyadic, its fungal manufacturing platform, and the potential to change the economics of biomanufacturing and the implications of that. We're going to focus on your recent move into the clinic on a deal that I think highlights the potential for the technology. We first featured you on the Bio Report back in 2017, but I thought we should take a step back and talk about your manufacturing technology. How are biologics and vaccines generally made today, and what are the limits of existing manufacturing processes? So basically, for biomanufacturing of pharmaceuticals, you have E. coli, which is a prokaryotic cell or a bacterial cell line, and that can only address approximately 20% of the world's biopharmaceutical market because 80% of the market approximately is, are glycoproteins. So if you want to make a glycoprotein like a monoclonal antibody that has the right glycoforms, uh, E. coli is out. The second negative aspect of E. coli, it's typically not secreted proteins, so you have to refold the proteins and crack open the cells, which is more expensive, time-consuming, and also costs more money, and you lose some of the product in the process that you produced. Third is that you have to remove endotoxins. And of course, as you know, from just everyday life, if you get endotoxins on the lettuce or companies like Chipotle had to have a recall because they had endotoxins in the meat, you know, it can cause sickness and actually death. So they have to spend extra time and energy in the downstream processing to remove the endotoxins. So E. coli grows very fast. It produces fairly well, but it's not secreted. It has endotoxins and some other limitations that I just talked about. Another cell line that people use for pharmaceutical vaccine manufacturing are insect cells or baculovirus cells. And the issues there is, as you can understand from the name baculovirus, 
Same problem as endotoxins. You have to get rid of the viruses in a downstream processing. It could take up to a month. You can, again, you lose some of the productivity when you do the extra steps of purification. And of course, uh, a month late in a pandemic would be a month way too late. So again, the yields there are even pathetic, quite frankly, in the Zoonosis Anticipation Preparative Initiative, or ZEPI, where we spent five years during ahead of the pandemic in 2015 to 2020, we demonstrated a 300-fold higher yield in three days less time without the need to remove viruses at the end. So it's the difference between night and day. And then Chinese hamster ovary cells is, let's say, the most predominant cell line used for glycoproteins like monoclonal antibodies and other proteins. But the difference there, again, if you make a stable cell line faster using C1 or the filamentous fungi, it could be one or two months quicker to get to a stable cell line. But the manufacturing process from the freezer, once you have a stable cell line, to the end of the fermentation process is roughly between 41 to 52 days for Cho cells, and we're 12 to 14 days. 12 days for typically an antigen or 14 days for a monoclonal antibody. And again, they have viruses that have to be removed. So in the case of a pandemic, if you want to get to a stable cell line faster or one or two months quicker, we can run three or four batches at a time they run one with a Cho cell. The yields are higher from our cell line. We've had up to 24, 25 grams per liter in seven days versus typically four to six or eight grams per liter of a Cho cell in 14 days. And then, of course, the media, the food that we use to feed ourselves is a fraction of the cost, maybe 20 or 50 times lower. And then, of course, you can release it faster because we don't have to remove the viruses in the process. Dyadic has developed a manufacturing platform you call C1. This is a fungal-based technology. This was initially used for industrial applications, but you came to see its potential for producing biotherapeutics and vaccines. Walk me through the history of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so how far back you want to go, from the industrial sector or the biopharmaceutical sector? Because it's a, over a three-decade journey. Well, how, how you transitioned. So basically, we, we had a theory when we were making industrial enzymes at up to 500,000 liter scale, which could be 50 or 100 times larger scale than pharmaceutical companies run at, we produced an enzyme, a pure enzyme, at about 80 grams per liter in conjunction with one of our clients for an animal feed application. And so we transitioned at the point when we sold our industrial enzyme business at the time to DuPont for $75 million. We then spent, that was December 31st, 2015, the next six plus years retooling, re-engineering, modifying the C1 cell line. So it would be a square peg fitting in a square hole because the industrial workhorse we had produced lots of protein, but it did so with also producing a lot of proteases in the background. And proteases, as you can imagine, would chew down proteins. So we've now engineered the C1 cell painstakingly one by one without the use of CRISPR, identifying which protease genes we can knock out that still allowed the cell to grow healthy, robust, with high productivity, but would allow us to have stability of the proteins that were secreted in the media. So that's just one example of one of the things that we had to do that needed to be 
modified from what we did in the industrial side. And it took a while. You can imagine knocking out 14, 15 different proteases to get stable proteins that led to hyperproductivity and stability for COVID-19 and influenza and other antigens that we produce with C1, including monoclonal antibodies. So that's kind of the transition. And we're working with big pharma, academics, company or academics, for example, at Utrecht University, Erasmus Medical Center, TIHO in Europe. Those are either in the Netherlands or Germany. We've done some work with scientists from Oxford. We've worked in Korea. We've worked in India. We're working in South Africa. And we're being approached by a variety of countries, a variety of scientists on a worldwide basis, including we worked with the National Institute of Health or the Vaccine Research Center or the Frederick National Lab in the spring and summer of 2020 to develop a full spike COVID-19 protein antigen for uh, COVID. You talked about some of the advantages of this manufacturing approach, but in terms of time, cost, footprint, how does it compare to more traditional approaches? Well, again, if I compare it to, let's just use Cho cells, which seems to be the largest cell line production host for monoclonal antibodies. It's used for antigens for vaccines and bispecifics, trispecifics, things like that. Again, the fermentation vessels that we can use are much smaller. They're standard E. coli microbial fermenters that grow on low-cost sugars or CGMP-defined media, like glucose, for example, or sucrose. So the media cost is 20 to 50 times cheaper. The yields per cell are higher. You can run three or four batches in a time. You can run one batch of a Cho cell. So you can imagine that the footprint is going to be much smaller. Your output is much greater and your costs are much lower. And of course, on the downstream processing, we don't have to remove viruses because unlike E. coli that have endotoxins or baclovirus or Cho cells that have viruses, we have no bio burden to remove in the first place. So we can do it quicker at a lower cost, retain more, produce more in a smaller footprint. Given that you don't have to remove viruses, what's the purification process like? Well, the purification process, because it's secreted, is easier than, for example, E. coli. We have to crack open the cells, we fold it, and then remove the uh, endotoxins. But it's Cho cells or baclovirus cells are secreted as well. So virtually the downstream processing is identical. The difference is that the yield of the protein is much more concentrated coming out of the fermentation broth from C1 cells. And then, of course, you don't have any viruses like you'd have in baculovirus or insect cells or in Cho cells. So the time would be shorter, potentially up to a month or maybe even longer, it takes to remove these viral inactivation steps at a higher cost where you also then lose yield, which we don't have. We've been through a pandemic where the ability to manufacture vaccines rapidly and cost-effectively became top of mind. Dietic has been, been involved in a number of international agreements to develop COVID vaccines. There have been collaborations announced with partners in South Korea, India, and South Africa. What lessons have nations learned from the pandemic about access to vaccines, and how much pressure is there to develop production capacity? Well, I think in some ways, again, I, I want to go back to the history of why we are where we are. And it, again, in, 
2015, we started working with the European Union funded project with AstraZeneca, Borringer Ingelheim, Erasmus Medical Center, Utrecht University, and 15, 20 other scientists and academic institutes to prepare for potential pandemics. And in that five-year time frame, we had demonstrated surge capacity and the ability to produce robust, versatile antigens at levels that were unheard of before, faster, quicker, cheaper, using standard E. coli fermenters and or single-use bioreactors. So I think the issue really is politics continues to play a role in COVID-19 pandemic preparedness. And between governmental officials, our public elected officials, I don't think there's been enough attention placed upon what it is we need to do to really combat the problem and be better prepared. And I think, unfortunately, lessons learned are not being lessons followed, even today in the midst of a pandemic. And so we've been working with academics, governmental agencies, and industry to try to educate them as to the power of an industrial biotech workhorse like C1 or C1 cells that are being used or have been used by the likes of DuPont, BSF, Shell Oil, Abengoa Bioenergy, and Dyadic at up to 500,000 liters. And we don't need 500,000 liters to satisfy a global demand. So we're scaling down. So you can stamp out plants on every continent and actually regions within continents, which is what we're doing with the Rubik Consortium in South Africa or Epigen in India, where they're actually using their own facilities or other facilities that they have access to, like CDMOs, like Syngene in India and others that have run C1 now, where you can actually use smaller fermentation capacity to pump out more for less and actually be able to produce enough antigens probably in a month to satisfy the worldwide demand in another pandemic. I, I want to talk about the Rubik Consortium. Can, can you explain for listeners who may not be familiar with it what it is and what you're doing with them? Yeah, I mean, the Rubik Consortium is a group of uh, individuals and academics and industry that come from South Africa, and they're, they're working, it's called Witsrand University. And Witsrand University, to kind of lay it out, it could be like an Oxford or an MIT or a Scripps in terms of credibility, the virology, the, the expertise of the scientists there, okay? And they have a, a new website. It's called Rubik One Health, and it's rubikonehealth.co.za. And if you go to that website, I think you can get, or your listeners will be able to get a lot of information on what they do there. And a lot of these COVID-19 variants, for example, like Beta, came out of South Africa. And some of the brightest, smartest virologists and immunologists reside down there because, of course, Africa seems to breed a lot of these infectious diseases, whether it's malaria or HIV or obviously COVID-19 or variations thereof. So the association we have with them is we've trained them already, just like we did with BSF and Shell Oil and others in Codexis and DuPont and Abengoa, how to engineer the C1 cells on their own so that if they want to make other vaccines for other diseases, whether it be malaria or it be HIV or other things, or Zika or Dengue or Marburg or Ebola, they have the ability now to take the sequence 
put into the semen cells, generate stable cell lines, and we've taught them how to produce with the fermentation process and optimization. So their tech transfer is completed, and right now we're running our first, as you know, phase one trial in South Africa. And the reason we're doing it in South Africa, it's not because of a quality or difference. The truth of the matter is the protein and the vaccine, in our case, is 99% pure, and it's being run in South Africa because the Wits Rand University or the Rubik One Health is committing potentially try to get the funding to run into phase two and phase three. And again, in Africa, if you build a Rolls-Royce factory in an area that can afford a Ford, you know, they can't afford to pay the prices for mRNA or very expensive vaccines. And again, the distribution, we have a huge advantage because we can have stable proteins, recombinant proteins at two to eight degrees, which is basically your home refrigeration or an ice chest versus minus 20, minus 80 for an mRNA vaccine. So despite the fact that we can make more for less, we make them more affordable. And then again, there's the whole issue of tradition. And people are more comfortable taking recombinant protein vaccines because they've been doing that for decades. Where mRNA, they have, in some cases, some hesitation in taking something new and novel. And whether that's justified or not, it doesn't really matter. It's it's perception. And so we can vaccinate, I think, many of the people that were more reluctant to take an mRNA vaccine using recombinant protein technologies. The trial of what's known as DYAI-100, the, the experimental vaccine, is the first time that we've actually seen a patient dosed with a protein produced from the C1 platform. What is DYAI-100, and how does it compare to the vaccines we've seen for COVID-19 to date? Yeah, so to your point, this is, a, I think, a breakthrough moment in history where we're basically going to transform or revolutionize biomanufacturing by bringing the power of what we've been doing for 30 years in the industrial biotech. High-scale, flexible commercial scales, massive production, low cost. And the design of the DYA-100 was designed originally by the European scientists out of Zappi, Albert Osterhaus, Baron von Bosch, and Bart Hagemann. They're three of the top coronavirus MERS, SARS, scientists in the world before COVID-19 showed up. So they had the experience of using either a full spike protein, which is actually 18 times larger than the receptor binding domain, which is the top of the protein. And the receptor binding domain is where 80% approximately of the neutralizing antibodies come from. So if you can chop off the head by just using the RBD, a much smaller protein, they theorized that it would be safer, no antibody-dependent you know, effects like ADE, ERD, potentially mycocarditis would not be surfacing blood clots. You just have less epitopes that have no value being expressed in a human body where it's now making antibodies to these epitopes that have nothing to do with COVID-19. So you're basically taking superfluous or additional proteins, exposing them generating antibodies in a human being that actually don't contribute to the problem. So we were looking at a more focused neutralizing antibody, more concentrated in the neutralization of the antibodies that would eradicate the COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 virus. And what's 
What's known about the vaccine from the preclinical studies? Well, we, we did preclinical studies, virtually more than a dozen of them. They were done in Europe, in hamsters. They were done in mice. They were done in transgenic mice. So they were done in rabbits for the toxicology study in Israel. We worked, in addition to the European Zappi group, in advance of the pandemic, we had also worked with the Israel Institute of Biological Research. And if you go to dietic.com and you go to the Media Center and you go to our scientific publications, you'll find a very detailed publication in, in the scientific peer-reviewed journal of vaccines that highlights the animal study, the challenge study, and, and the development of the DYA100 vaccine process in more detail. We even worked with countries like Cuba, where at the beginning of the pandemic, we provided them with, through R&D, a sample of our DY100 antigen produced from C1, the RBD. And there's two publications on there that show the safety, efficacy, and the, let's say, proper folding of the disulfide bridges. And at the beginning of the pandemic, if you go and understand and you look at the history and you look at what countries came out with what vaccines and the performance and the safety, the Cubans actually had 92% efficacy doing the smaller RBD protein produced in a yeast cell because unfortunately with a embargo with the US, we couldn't allow them to commercialize something using our technology or they would have been able to make five to 20 times more of it. And as their own data shows, ours was more effective. And what's the development path forward? Well, again, one of the things that I think people need to understand that the DY100 vaccine is really about not just making a COVID-19, it's about being ready for the future. So with the initiation of the phase one clinical trial, this is the first time a vaccine or treatment is being produced from our C1 cells. And what that is, it leads to the ability to check the box with big pharma or academics or governments that are leery to jump into a new platform. So it's what E. coli had to go through 30 to 50 years ago, what Cho cell had to go through 30 to 50 years ago. So we're at the beginning, the hyper, hyper productivity, the speed, the efficacy, <clears throat> you now will have safety data that demonstrates that you can produce protein from the C1 cell line and they can be safe and used in human beings. We'd already used it in mice, in cattle, in lambs, in chickens, in rabbits, in hamsters, and showed safety and efficacy. But this is the first time, I believe, of any filamentous fungal cell producing a protein going to a human being. And the C1 cell has very, very many unique attributes that other filamentous fungi don't have. The morphology is more robust, more versatile, more scalable, runs under lower viscosity, higher yield, runs in a human phys physiological pH and temperature ranges. It just provides all the advantages of industrial biotech and overcomes the disadvantages of low yield, high cost that the pharmaceutical industry has been dealing with for decades. And if we want to bring health equity to a global population, <clears throat> either in developed and undeveloped countries, we need to change the cell line in the tank because the tank is just a tank. The cell line and the way you engineer that cell line determines the output, the quantities, the quality. And 
we believe that filamentous fungi are the most productive organisms on the planet in terms of secreting low-cost media, <clears throat> high scalability. We've demonstrated this for years, for decades, actually. And now we're just applying Moore's law in synthetic biology to one of, if not the most efficient, cell line on the planet. I mentioned you've got similar agreements in India and South Africa. Where are those efforts, and are they developing identical vaccines to what you're doing in South Africa, or are they doing something different? Well, in India, we're working with a small biotech company called Epigen Biotech, and Epigen was funded by the Indian government, BIRAC. It's a governmental biotech, and I think they're funding somewhere between 2 to $3 million for them to do phase one and phase two trials. Now, we're already in phase one in South Africa. We've already mentioned we've started in initiating dosing. We're very near final dosing the last patients, preferably, or hopefully it'll be done sometime by the end of this week. And so, so far, everything looks very good. And that's for the DYA100 RBD vaccine for a booster. In India, because they're running at a, let's say, later time point, we're now evaluating doing a bivalent, kind of what happened with Pfizer and Moderna here in the U.S., where they had a Wuhan Omicron blend. And I think the difference between what they have and what we have in some ways is night and day, because I think if you look at what we're doing and making protein in a tank, not in your body, right? You know the difference between how mRNA is used versus a recombinant protein vaccine, or would you like me to sort of go through that? Well, why don't you explain that? So... Traditionally, for 50 years, whether it be hepatitis or a variety of other things like shingles or HPV or pertussis, flu shots, which I think most people are familiar with, the protein is produced recombinantly from a cell in a tank and then purified. And then it goes and gets injected in your body. Your body sees it as a foreign antigen and starts creating antibodies against it to defend or neutralize the virus. In the case of mRNA, they're putting that gene or RNA into your body. Your body is making the vaccine, and then your body's reacting to the vaccine. So your body has to work hard to make the vaccine. We do that in the tank, so we skip that step, and then you react to it. And so it's an efficient way of doing something, but it's, let's say, potentially more problematic for certain people that may have certain conditions. Because, you know, if you have to work harder in your body to generate the vaccine and then react to it, you would theorize that that may be more, let's say, energy spent in the cellular part of it than you would if you just made the protein and put the protein in and your body just started to make antibodies against it. But there's another point that I think is very critical, and I don't know how much attention has been spent on this, but when we produce Wuhan, we can get one, two, three grams per liter protein produced. When you produce Omicron, you get substantially less. So not every gene or every variant is expressed in a cell at the same rate. And so if you think about it, in a recombinant protein, when we're making it in a tank, we can blend it so we know exactly what's going into every body, right? So the FDA, EMA, would require us to have a standard and consistent supply 
of the vaccine going into a human being. So if we wanted 50-50, 25 micrograms of Wuhan and 25 gram micrograms of, say, Omicron 5, which is basically what the RNA vaccines are doing, and we would know exactly that we actually have 25 micrograms of Wuhan protein, right? Blended in with 25 grams or micrograms of Omicron 5 or a combined 50 micrograms. But 50-50 blend accurately, consistently reproduced. From what we've seen, if it's a hex cell, a Cho cell, an insect cell, a yeast cell, a C1 cell, you get different expression levels. So I would theorize that when you put in 25 micrograms of Wuhan and you put in 25 micrograms of Omicron into a human being cell, you're not getting 50-50. Forgetting the variations of human beings, just in the first place, the sequences don't express at the same rates. So the question really is, what are we putting in your body? And do we have control of that? And I'm not sure, do you need control of that or not? But I would think that it would be more advantageous to have more consistency and control over the protein that you're injecting into a human being, or in this case, actually being made in the body. So I think recombinant proteins have an advantage. They may be more durable, uh, the RBD is 18 times smaller. One may argue that the full spike may have 20% other things and epitopes that might be beneficial, but there may be 80% of things that might be detrimental that are causing some of these side effects. So some of that's still left. You know, we don't know yet enough about it, but we took the most safe route, the simplest route, and DYA100 is a pure RBD protein vaccine with alum, and saline. And alum is what's been used in children's and adults' vaccines for five decades. So we took the most conservative, safe route of a vaccine that can be mass-produced in large quantities at low cost and replicated in fermentation facilities or contract manufacturing facilities virtually on every continent. Dyadic is public. It's been a difficult few years for the sector. The stock is down significantly from its highs and is trading around $1.40 with about a $40 million market cap. What's the conversation with shareholders like today? Well, not pleasant, but, but I'm, I'm between me and my family, we own about 25%. And, and so that you know, whether it's shareholders or our own, we, we're kind of unique. We actually are looking at shareholders as equal rather than most biotech companies raise money, dilute, raise money, dilute, raise money, dilute. That would make my job very easy to do, but it would dilute all the shareholders, including ourselves. So it's a painful this conversation, but the beautiful thing is we're really more interested in is what do the Oxfords, the MITs, the Scripps, and all the other universities and academics, what does BARDA, NAH, FDA, CDC, and the equivalents in the different countries in Europe and SAFRA, like for example, in South Africa. And what are the people like J&J, who we have a deal with on the therapeutic side, you know, what do they think? And the answer is they clearly understand we can make things quicker and larger volume at lower cost. And when we get the human safety data, we expect that to open the doors up wider, deeper, broader, just as we mentioned earlier, this trial is not just about COVID-19. In fact, it's just about everything else but COVID-19. 
it's about having a new cell line. I would say like a new sheriff in town, right? Quicker, better, faster, cheaper, potentially safer, more flexible, more robust, versatile manufacturing capabilities. They can be stamped out in virtually any country in the world at any flexible commercial scale. You can make enough vaccines for certain countries in your laboratory in a 10-liter fermenter. You can make enough antigens to provide probably all of Canada in a small fermenter in a month. You could do all of the USA in a little bigger fermenter, maybe a thousand liter fermenter in a month. A world 15,000 liter fermenter maybe in a month for the antigen. So it's unparalleled, I think, in terms of yield, in terms of cost. And we also got to think about distribution, right? In some of these countries, they don't have minus 20, minus 80. So a lot of people that wanted a vaccine aren't getting it because the minus 20, minus 80 vaccines can't reach them. And in our case, as we mentioned earlier, it's two to eight degrees standard refrigeration. And you can even put it in an ice chest and carry it in your car and go somewhere and use it. So I think it's just distribution was one of the failures of the pandemic. Cost, I think it's unsustainable. I think even in America, we broke, broke the bank. And in all these countries, a lot of these countries can't afford that. And then the other thing that we didn't talk about is monoclonal antibodies. I don't know if you know this or not, but during Delta, we couldn't keep up, fell behind in America. And if you weren't in the US of A, you weren't getting an antibody for two reasons. One, and they're used for treatments. So if you got COVID or worse, you get bird flu H5N1, which is theoretically going to be 50% deadly, we better have treatments. And if we can't make more for less, quicker, faster, using CHO cells today, C1 cells tomorrow, we got a major problem the next time some pandemic shows up that's more virulent. And I even have, and if you go on our website and you look at some of our slide decks, a uh, text from the U.S. Army supply chain that exactly said that. During Delta, they couldn't keep up. If it was more virulent, we would have had a lot of, let's say, pain, suffering, and death that we weren't prepared to deal with. And as you sort of mentioned and we talked about earlier, lessons learned aren't being followed. And I think the scary thing to me as a human being is that the pharmaceutical industry and the governmental agencies and the press are missing the ball here. The point is we need to make a global solution, not just a regional solution or a USA solution. And without access and affordability, a vaccine or an antibody is 100% ineffective. Well, how far will existing funding take you, and, and what's the need or plan for raising additional capital? Well, we, we hope, and our goal and objective is to do non-dilutive deals like we did in the industrial space when we licensed our technology on non-exclusive basis, first to Codexis and Shell, which raised us $10 million with potential milestones and royalties on the road. We then licensed it to Abengoa who then between 15, 15 and a half million dollars of partially dilutive, non-dilutive capital, same thing. We then licensed as a BASF for $6 million on a non-exclusive basis for certain fields of use. And then DuPont came and purchased the industrial biotech business at the time for $75 million. And so we've been using that money to develop 
technology to advance it, to take the round peg that fit in the square hole and fill in the blanks. And now we have a square peg filling in all the blanks that uh, we think is going to do what Elon Musk did to the auto industry is transform biomanufacturing from antigen production for vaccines, monoclonal antibodies for infectious and other disease, bispecifics. We just make protein, so we're agnostic. You put a DNA sequence in, out comes a protein. We can do it now at high yields, knocked out the proteases, do it stably. We've done the glycoengineering of the cell line. So depending on if you want non-human glycans to stimulate better immunogenicity or potentially better, smaller sugars for vaccines, or you want human glycans like G2, G1, G0, we've engineered C1 to make human glycans for monoclonal antibodies. And we just finished a non-human primate study for a COVID-19 monoclonal antibody where we demonstrated not only the same performance, but the same safety as a Cho cell in a non-human primate. Mark Emelfarb, CEO of Dyadic International. Mark, thanks as always. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it. Thank you.